Walks like an animal, talks like an animal, must be an animal. Come here, the animal, talking animal, talking animal. Good morning. This is Talking Animals on WMNF. My guest today is Dr. Brian Hare, professor of evolutionary anthropology, psychology, and neuroscience at Duke University, where he founded the Duke Canine Cognition Center. Hare is the co-author with Vanessa Woods of The Genius of Dogs, How Dogs Are Smarter Than You Think. Their new book is Survival of the Friendliest. Understanding Our Origins and Rediscovering Our Common Humanity. For a book that runs just under 200 pages, Survival of the Friendless is surprisingly sprawling and teeming with big ideas. One of the central ideas emerges from examining how an inclination towards friendliness allows species to live more successfully with their counterparts and those of other species, and how the absence of that predisposition for friendliness can and often does lead to dehumanizing others. As one measure of how powerful friendliness can be, Heron Woods cited examples of how the inclination toward it over generations can play a role in altering the animals or humans appearance we'll discuss those things and more about the new book when i speak with dr brian Hare in just a moment here on talking animals on wmnf later in the program i'll speak with scott trebitoski director of the hillsborough county pet resource center for follow-up to the conversation we had in april when scott described a significant surge in adoptions owing to the pandemic specifically the lockdown that seemed to be behind the dramatic increase and the number of people willing to provide homes to cats and dogs. Many people in the shelter world have feared there might be the opposite dynamic coming, that also because of COVID-19, people have been losing their jobs, in some cases being unable to afford to feed and care for those pets, which might then in turn lead to returning them to the shelters. We'll delve into that when we speak with Scott Trebitoski later on in the show. Right now, though... Let's talk friendliness and its ramifications with Dr. Hare with a reminder that I invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing dj at wmnf.org, or texting 813-433-0885. This is Dr. Brian Hare back on Talking Animals on WMNF. Good morning, Dr. Hare. Hello. Thanks for joining us again on Talking Animals. Pleasure to be with you. Great. So congrats on a fascinating book that perhaps in even more ways than you and Vanessa may have envisioned feels enormously timely. That's one of the many, many elements I hope to explore with you about Survival of the Friendliest, and we'll get to those things in a moment. But first, I'm just kind of curious. You're a self-described dog guy. You created the Canine Cognition Center, and your previous book was The Genius of Dogs. So people... I guess could be excused for thinking maybe the next book would in some fashion be a dog book. Can you maybe walk me through some of the process for deciding what the focus of the new book would be and what the focus would not be and that it would not be a a dog book and instead the uh, exploration of friendliness? What a great question. Thank you for asking it. Um, So I uh, am trained as an anthropologist, actually. I study human evolution, uh, and I'm really interested in the evolution of human psychology. And the underlying assumption of all our work is that if you want to understand humans and human behavior, uh, you first have to understand what it is to be not human. And 
So uh, unlike uh, many people who have focused only on primates to better understand humans, uh, I also have studied dogs. So that's sort of the connection there. I study lots of different uh, organisms. I study dogs. I study primates. Um, and so uh, that, that's sort of how it ended up uh, being this time uh, a book uh, about uh, how animals can teach us about ourselves. Yeah, okay, well, so that all makes sense. Still, maybe you could talk a, a bit about this concept of friendliness, because initially it might have seemed like basis for a scholarly article or a short piece of some kind. How did it start to strike you and Vanessa as something that would actually be a book, sustain a book? Well, when we first uh, uh, started writing the book, we actually um, were just going to talk about sort of uh, the idea that humans have been shaped by evolution in a similar way as other animals uh, through selection for friendliness. And we were going to make the case that this has occurred in humans. Um, and so then uh, in 2016, as uh, the world started to change in dramatic ways, we decided to revise our plan and uh, be a little bit more ambitious. Um, so that's sort of the history of what happened with the book. Um, in terms of friendliness, I mean, the reason we got so excited about this is it is something we study. We study uh, domestication, and we think that uh, what is domestication? Domestication is actually a process of an animal uh, in, uh, in having genetic change over generations that increases their friendliness. Uh, in the case of dogs, for instance, evolving from wolves, it would be their ability to approach and be interested and be friendly towards people uh, that drove uh, the domestication of that species. So uh, we got really excited about then thinking about how that same process may have happened in other animals uh, and also even our own species. And so that's sort of what the book was going to totally focus on. But uh, then we got excited about other things as well. Yeah, well, that's the thing. I mean, as I said in the opening, and as I said to uh, to a friend, uh, I think on a social post or response to one, a social media post. I mean, the book. Before you get to acknowledgments and all your footnotes and indexes stuff, is under 200 pages. But with all the ground that you guys cover, it feels like it could be a thousand pages, just because it's so loaded with uh, animals and ideas and historic moments and key figures. And I mean, it's really the scope is sort of breathtaking, especially relative to a book that's not like a gigantic doorstop, which it could easily be based on everything that's in it. Well, it's funny. It's so funny to hear you say that. And and um, the uh, because it, it, when we turned in our first draft, uh, the book was twice as long as it is now. Okay, and we and we had an amazing editor who really really helped us. So it was it was despite all my efforts as a scientist to be boring and and talk too long or write too long. My wife, who is an amazing science communicator and an amazing editor made it into something really uh, easy to read. Yeah, but also uh, that, talking about turning in the thing, I guess actually at the beginning of the acknowledgments, in fact, where you mentioned that what you thought you had completed as a book because of circumstances, which you may or may not want to get into in some detail, just prompted you guys to sort of scrap a lot of that manuscript, not necessarily start over, but at least start over on a, a portion of it. Do you want to talk about that for a moment? Yeah, well, the I mean, what, what happens is when you start exploring the effect of friendliness in uh, late human evolution, say the last 50,000 years, uh, you start to realize that the mechanism uh, that has developed in our own species uh, such, 
so that really our species is built for friendliness. That is really our uh, survival strategy is being friendly with others. But when you realize that that mechanism exists and it's important for our species, uh, you also realize that it can potentially turn off and uh, potentially direct it at different uh, groups of people. Um, and that uh, we, we sort of ended the book in 2016 saying, look, uh, this is we have this darker part of our nature as a result of the fact that we are so friendly. And it seems counterintuitive, but that's sort of where we left off. Um, and and we, we sort of said, look, and you know, if you think that the, the darker chapters of human history can't repeat it themselves, you know, you have to take into account the fact that part of our nature, not a cultural thing, it produces cultures, it interacts with cultures, but it's not just a cultural thing, the darkest parts of our nature. Um, and so we need to be on the lookout and, and we need to develop, you know, we need to take care of our institutions and make sure that they're uh, prepared to deal with a darker part of human nature. So that's sort of where we left off is like, everybody watch out. And then in 2016, we were like, whoa, wait a second. <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe, maybe it's not really a warning now. Maybe it's what do we do? Yeah, it's um, too, too prophetic uh, in a way. Yeah. And, and so that's where then uh, we wrote our editor and we said, uh, uh, we turned in the the original draft in October 2016, and then we wrote our editor a few months later and said, "Hey, you know what? We think we're gonna we think we should get rid of half the book, and we're gonna do a bunch of research for another couple of years and rewrite the the back half of the book." And uh, and so she was she was very um, accommodating and excited about that, and so we did. And we had to learn all sorts of things about history and political science, uh, economics, uh, all sorts of things. I didn't, uh, you know, I read in the newspaper but i didn't know much about and so it was an amazing uh tour de force uh trying to learn and better understand how to think about solutions to uh you know what does it mean that we have we are built for friendliness but our friendliness sometimes shuts down yeah well i want to uh go back for a moment and then go forward but i first want to just uh identify you for folks who might just be tuning in now this is talking animals on wmnf i'm duncan strauss and if you are just tuning in my guest is dr brian Hare, professor at duke university founder of the duke canine cognition center and his new book co-author of vanessa woods is survival of the friendliest understanding our origins and rediscovering our common humanity if you'd like to ask dr Hare a question or offer a comment please call 813-239-9600 Email DJ at WMNF.org or text 813-433-0885. So the part where I want to go back just for a sec is when you mentioned that you guys got very excited. I was curious, were there one or two, uh, and this is either in the original version of the book or in the revised version of the book, this, this question holds, I guess, for either. Were there one or two particular aha moments where you did suddenly see kind of a whole vista of scientists and animals and experiments and ideas newly sort of interconnected that yielded a, a revised understanding of what friendliness can mean and the impact it can wield? I, do, I, I think so, because uh, I, don't, I don't know if there was one moment, but, but I mean, the, I think one of the things that happens in the book is, and as we were doing research over many, many years, was it just kept happening that, you know, having the lens of thinking about humans being built for friendliness and understanding a little bit more uh, than we had in the past, the mechanism that allows for that in our brains and in our minds and how it can shut down. Start As, as all the current events were happening uh, over the last few years, having that lens, uh, that unique lens, it sort of lent being able to see a straight line between a whole bunch of things that seemed 
totally unconnected if you didn't have that lens. So uh, I, I don't know if it was a moment. It was more just like because we had that view, uh, we were like, oh, my gosh, you know, that has everything to do with uh, how we think about this, even though it's like, wait, what? Uh, why would reading the Federalist Papers have anything to do with talking about dog domestication? Um, but but it ends up that there is a link. Well, that's the thing. It seems improbable. And again, part of what I I guess I was so struck by when I was saying that, like, it seems like a thousand page book that that comes in just under 200 is there's there are so many things and things that are uh, connected that you wouldn't necessarily first think would be connected, but that's part of what's really uh, inspiring about the book. So, for example, you're, you're barely four pages into the book when you upend our understanding of, or many of our at least, understanding of a fundamental phrase associated with a major figure, by which I mean Charles Darwin, and of course survival of the fittest, um, you write, cooperation is the key to our survival as a species because it increases our evolutionary fitness. Can you kind of expand on that? Sure, absolutely. I mean, I think um, when, when we think about evolution, I think most people think it's all about the big, strong, alpha male and, uh, you know, or alpha individual who is somehow, um, you know, going to be able to beat up or uh, force others to relinquish things so that uh, they can monopolize and have everything. And they're the winners. And somehow that makes them superior um, and maybe even those like them and their group are superior and everybody else is inferior. And so that's sort of, uh, in a way, how people normally conceptualize the idea of survival of the fittest in evolution. Um, and from a biological perspective uh, and from Darwin's perspective, that's not what it means at all. Uh, fitness it just means your ability to uh, succeed at having offspring and uh, it ends up that if you take a step back and you look at um, some of life's great achievements and I mean all of bi biology and when I say life life's great achievements and the big transitions in life where all of a sudden a whole set of organisms start being way more successful than uh, other organisms it's always a story of an increase in friendliness that then facilitates some new form of cooperation. Uh, so it's not that fitness means uh, mean, big, bad, superior individuals are better. Uh, in fact, life's most successful strategy is new forms of friendliness, new forms of cooperation. And, you know, we can talk about examples of that, of course. Yeah. But exhibit, exhibit A is your dog at home. Yeah, we'll come back to that. And, of course, I think, we, uh, I think we're uh, bound by some sort of uh, covenant to discuss bonobos and other things. Uh, so we'll get into those things in a moment. I'm um, going to get a caller involved here. And, and actually, one of our emails just want to know, I mean, we're, we'll be talking about dogs, but we have a question here about, like, dog behavior or nipping or something that probably won't necessarily have time to address uh, today because that's sort of not quite the focus of today's conversation or, or the book that Dr. Hare and Vanessa Woods have um, have written uh, for the moment. But uh, um, so anyway, 
related to what you were just saying, though, even even still, I guess, basically in the introduction, in fact, because you talk about challenging your students to use evolutionary theory to solve the world's problems and then saying that you guys gave yourselves sort of the same challenge in this book. And then you proceed from there to to, to pretty much do it. Um, and one of the key things that laced throughout there, which does tie into things uh, that maybe uh, precipitated the... Uh, throwing out part of the manuscript, is how the flip side of friendliness, the absence of it, can bring dark results, not least dehumanizing others. I don't know if you want to address that either historically or in current <laughs> terms. Sure, or- sure. I, I, I mean, we where we end up in uh, talking about friendliness is that our species really is built for friendliness. Uh, and it, it's the secret to our species' success. There were many other human species until 50,000 years ago, and they all had big brains, they all were linguistic, um, they all had culture. And so the normal explanations we might give uh, for why our species is so different than other animals is, oh, we have big brains, we're culture and linguistic. Um, well, those don't work because uh, there were other human species till 50,000 years ago that had all those traits. So that can't be why we're the last human standing. It must have been something else. And we think it was, just like there's been uh, biological genetic change that allows a dog to be more friendly than a wolf, uh, that same process has occurred in humans late in human evolution over the last 50,000 years. Uh, And it allowed us to work together, communicate, share ideas, learn from each other in a way that other human species couldn't. And that's why we succeeded and the other species failed. Uh, One of the things it does, though, is uh, it pushed humans to have a new type of social category, a new type of social partner. And that is individuals who you have never met before, a total stranger, but who you immediately recognize as your group member. And that's completely unique to our species. No other species does this, where you see a stranger, but you know that they're in your group, that you can be friends immediately because you share some marker of group identity. And as humans evolve this group identity, it allows us to work together in larger numbers of individuals. And we see our group members as family. We feel as if they're family. So um, I don't want to go too long, but just to say that what what it does is, uh, and I want to use a metaphor, though, to return to your question about dehumanization, which is uh, what it does is when we start loving our group members as family, uh, it means that when those individuals are threatened, that our our bodies, our brains are built to uh, respond to that threat. So imagine a mama bear. Uh, you know, when would it be more nurturing and wonderful and loving than when a mama bear is with uh, the baby cubs and they're nursing and playing and she's caring for them? Uh, she couldn't be more wonderful and friendly and it wouldn't be any, there's no time more fun to watch a bear. But when is a mama bear more dangerous than when she's with her cub? So when her cubs are threatened, she will do anything to protect them. And she'll even take on things that are much more dangerous and much bigger than she she is. And so we have a psychological switch in our mind that when our group that we love as if they were our offspring uh, with the same tenacity that a, mo- a mama bear loves her cubs, when when uh, those group members or when our group identity is threatened, there's almost like a switch in our minds where we go from being the kindest species and the friendliest species that's ever evolved to becoming the cruelest species because we're trying to defend those that love. And that leads to dehumanization, which we can talk about uh, more in depth if you want. Sure. Okay, we've had a caller holding for a bit, so let's get them involved in the
the conversation, and then we'll come back to that question. Hi, you're on Talking Animals with Dr. Brian Hare. Hello, it's fascinating. Hi, but this is Rob. I'm over in Notice Facet. You know, I've actually done some reading in, in the sort of area you're in, and it's uh, absolutely amazing. Um, the idea of the idea of uh, you know, say, when evolution started, ev- evolutionary biology, single cell organisms began cooperating, collecting in groups where there was specialization, and uh, you know, in like the human body, for instance, or any kind of um, complex organism has cells who are cooperating in a sense of being friendly to each other. Now, extrapolating that to human behavior, one can almost, I think, even look at certain uh, spiritual practices as forming a larger body, not physically, but sort of, you know, um, mentally, you know, where people are cooperating on ever higher levels. And that's really what evolution is going to. Uh, I don't know if that makes any sense to you, but if you could comment on that, I'd appreciate it. uh, Your book sounds absolutely amazing. All right, thanks for your call. Thanks for your question. Thank you. No, I think you're spot on. I mean, I think from, it's not just animals, even in at the level of uh, microorganisms. I mean, one example of an interesting cooperative partnership is uh, microbiome. So the bacteria in our guts and in the guts of many animals that help us digest our food, uh, and then they get energy, and we actually get energy and uh, everybody wins. So there's mutual benefit. Uh, that's a great, uh, another great example. And so, yes, I, I think that, uh, you know, cooperation and uh, higher levels of cooperation then if we extrapolate out to animal relationships or human relationships, um, major changes in success of organisms is uh, often linked to some increase in friendliness and cooperation. That's right. With that in mind, our focus is and should be friendliness, but I think really to just develop a little bit more about the the flip side of that, let's talk a little bit more about what happened when people are dehumanized. First of all, I assume that when it got to be latter part of 2016 and beyond and you said, "Uh uh-oh, maybe we should revise our book, what specifically or what combination of things, I guess, maybe even prompted that decision? Well, dehumanization is when uh, you see other humans, other human beings that are fully human, just like, uh, you know, anyone else, when when you perceive them as not being fully human. Uh, and you may not be aware that that's what's happening. Uh, and then sometimes it can be very, very explicit. Uh, and dehumanization is often, um, is most often seen when people feel their group identity is threatened. Um, and what happens when a, a, an individual or a group of people dehumanize another group, uh, they uh, tend to morally express the other groups. So that means that they don't think when when uh, when you dehumanize a group, you don't think that the normal moral standards that apply to other humans uh, they no longer apply to that group. Um, and so then that means that violence or aggression um, uh, is allowable. And so uh, in in terms of what sort of made us think that this was going on in a really serious way uh, in 2016, during the uh, run-up to the elections in 2016, there was a lot of dehumanizing language uh, being used by candidates in the 2016 election, and I had never, uh, you know, I'm pretty, I, I like to follow politics, and I was pretty shocked at the level of dehumanization of different groups of uh, people. And uh, because we were studying the flip side of our friendliness and how when our mechanisms for friendliness shut down, what that then allows is for the scariest feature of our psychology to show up, and that's dehumanization. And if you're encouraging that by dehumanizing other groups and, and even making your own supporters feel like 
their group identity is threatened uh, and that others are dehumanizing them. This is just absolutely, you know, a, you know, a cocktail for aggression, violence, discord. And, uh, you know, you're, you're, flanning, you're fanning the flames of our darkest uh, parts of our nature. So it became clear that, oh, wow, uh, you know, disagreeing and arguing with rivals in a democracy, that's what it's all about. Uh, but when, you, when that leads to dehumanization of others, uh, that can be very, very frightening. Uh, and so uh, that's where we sort of said, wow, we've really got to approach this and delve into this and talk about solutions. Well, that's the thing. I mean, the, there's a certain skill, I don't know if I would call it a talent, that goes with specifically dehumanizing individuals or let's say they're opposing candidates at one point or another, and then more broadly than that, as you've noted, groups. And just the polarizing effect and how that then, of course, unfortunately leads to aggression and violence, which we're seeing other examples, obviously, very recently yet again. So I guess for the second time in less than two months on this show, I find myself asking out loud, why can't humans be more like bonobos? <laughs> so uh, That's a good question. <laughs> yeah. So given the premise of Survival of the Friendless, I, I'd say that bonobos are clearly kind of the star of this book and probably the best species in some regards, and not just because they believe sex solves damn near every problem, but you're a bonobo man from way back. So for those listening who may not be familiar, can you provide the lowdown on bonobos framed kind of obviously in the context of the new book? Sure, absolutely. So... Uh, we have two closest living primate relatives, chimpanzees that, you know, people know, made famous by Jane Goodall and others. And then there's the bonobo. So it's like having two first cousins. One's a girl, one's a boy. They're equally closely related to you, but they're different from each other. So we have two closest relatives. And we couldn't be luckier because they are different from each other in really interesting ways that help us understand ourselves better. And so, as you mentioned, uh, bonobos are really interesting in that uh, there is no such thing as bonobo side. No bonobo has ever killed another bonobo. There is homicide, obviously, where humans kill one another, and there's chimp side, where chimpanzees kill one another. So, bonobos are the only species in our great ape uh, family, from a biological perspective, that uh, do not kill one another. Um, so they're friendlier in that sense, and it's wonderful uh, to then ask the question and think about why is it that uh, lethal aggression and violence uh, that leads to murder does not exist in this species that we share 99% of our DNA with, uh, and even though they have a brain that is a third the size of ours, they have the wonderful reality of waking up in the morning and not having to worry that anyone's going to hurt them uh, in a way that would lead to death. Whereas, you know, as humans, uh, you know, that is something that could happen. So uh, they're really a very interesting species to think about how they evolve to be so friendly in a, in a way that we cannot accomplish. Uh, and so uh, what we think happened is that a very similar process that happened as dogs evolved from wolves happened from bonobos as they evolved from an ancestor that was more chimp-like in terms of their aggression. They're so interesting and, and so singular obviously it'd be nice if they were less so but um so kind of related to what you just described and what you mentioned a few times along the way dr Hare, as one measure of just how powerful the inclination towards friendliness can be the book cites examples of how over generations obviously that friendliness can play a role in altering 
altering an animal or a human's appearance. Can you speak to this, how that works, what it ends up looking like, and what characteristics that specifically that seems to involve? Yeah, let me just drop one more bonobo fact. Though. Sure. I'm always interested in hearing more about bonobos. Okay, cool. So, because I think uh, when we're saying friendliness is a winning strategy and um, that friendliness uh, is such a powerful uh, force in evolution, uh, I think bonobos illustrate this so well because, and, and it's a new finding, in the last couple of years, uh, we have data from wild bonobos and male bonobos in particular that we think have been selected to be friendlier and have the morphology or the body type that you were referring to in your last question they have these changes that um, we can talk about. Um, they, bonobo males never attack their mother. They don't have uh, territories that they uh, attack and try to kill their neighbors like chimpanzees do. No bonobo male would attack a baby. Um, uh, they're just absolute mama boy, mama's boys. They're, they're, they're super friendly relative to chimpanzee males that have all these different forms of aggression. So normally in the the way we talk about survival of the of the fittest being the big alpha, no one would think that uh, you know, obviously that an alpha chimpanzee that can dominate a group and monopolize and force females to mate with him he's obviously going to have more offspring, and that's obviously the best strategy. It ends up that it's completely wrong. The friendliest bonobo males, we now know, based on the best evidence from the wild, they have far more offspring than the biggest, baddest alpha chimpanzee male. So it really is that friendliness wins. Mm. It's just so interesting. I mean, it makes sense, and it, may, it makes you feel encouraged and stuff, but about just the physical differences, I mean, you could still be excused for thinking it might go the other way. Oh, absolutely, but it, yeah. but it, but it, it, it really is the case that the yeah. most successful alpha chimpanzee with his big, bad, brutish ways is not as successful as the friendliest male bonobo. Well, there you go. Back to my premise of why can't humans be more like bonobos? This seems like yet another uh, point in their favor. But maybe you could talk a little bit more uh, while we're on this uh, about some of the physical transformation that, that does seem to happen in... in uh, absolutely, in, uh, absolutely. And, and the way that we know that there are changes that uh, are physical related to selection for friendliness is there's, there are experiments where animals have been selected to be friendlier and as an accident uh, of those selections for animals to be more friendly and it usually it's more friendly towards people that their fear of people is replaced with an interest to attract uh, attraction or an interest and motivation to interact and play with people and animals that have are selected in that way tend to also have a bunch of changes to their bodies that the people in the experiment weren't selecting for. So uh, in the case of the famous fox experiment, the foxes had uh, higher levels of floppy ears and curly tails and their canine teeth got smaller and they got uh, their coat colors changed. In the case of bonobos, we could use those experiments to say, okay, well, if bonobos really have been selected to be friendlier like we think they have been, we should see sort of analogous types of changes when we compare them to chimpanzees. And that's what we see. It seems that bonobos are kind of like dogs uh, when you look at their bodies, and chimpanzees are built, um, and their bodies are built more like wolves. So bonobo males have smaller canine teeth. They actually have smaller skulls and smaller brains, which is something that's associated with domestication. Uh, they also, they're, uh, they have a loss of pigment in their lips, uh, and um, they have all sorts of changes in how their body develops. And in particular, um, their bodies um, 
they sort of remain uh, the physiology of their bodies. So the hormones that are related to behavior, uh, they sort of stay at more a level that you would see in a juvenile chimpanzee, but they stay that way for their whole life. So they're sort of the Peter Pan uh, of the ape world. They're kind of sort of frozen as juveniles. Uh, uh, for their whole lives. Yeah, so again, younger looking, I guess, features and therefore friendlier, less menacing looking features. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and we see that again and again in nature where when there's friendliness, uh, animals tend to retain juvenile traits. So another fun example is, um, can I give you another, I have to, can I give you my favorite example of self-domestication right now? By all means, please. Okay, so my absolute favorite, and we talk about it in the book, my favorite example is, and, and it's not my own work, but this is one of those when you um, look at the lens of friendliness and self-domestication, um, you see things. And I'm reading uh, about fish. I don't know why I was reading about fish, but I was reading about fish, and I was reading about cleaner wrasse. These are the fish that oh, yeah. swim through. They swim through the teeth of predatory fish, and they get their dental parasite, um, and they eat them. And so the fish that has the parasite gets cleaned, and um, the cleaner fish get a meal. Well, I read more and more and more about them, and I it's amazing story. And they absolutely, I think, were uh, selected for friendliness and are a case of natural selection domestic a wild animal. Here's why. Uh, what do you have to do to swim into a predator's mouth? Well, you have to replace your fear of the predator with friendliness, an attraction to the predator. You actually swim into their mouth. Um, so this is absolutely exactly the selection pressure we would expect. Obviously, this all occurred without human intervention. And what, what, when you look at cleaner fish, there are different species of cleaner fish, which I didn't know. There are lots of uh, species in the family of cleaner fish. There's only two that are what are known as obligate cleaner fish. That means they clean their whole lives. Most cleaner fish only clean the mouths of predatory fish as juveniles. Guess what happens to the obligate uh, cleaner fish in evolution? They never grow up. They're frozen as mm. juveniles. And they even have the uh, uh, facial morphology. Their jaws uh, retain their juvenile morpho uh, uh, body shape and facial shape throughout their whole lives. Oh, my gosh. So cool. I couldn't believe it. I almost fell out of my chair when I read that. <laughs> That's <laughs> it's great, but like you say, it's the ultimate illustration of what you're talking about over time, over generations. Yeah. So, yeah, friendliness wins, and there really is a signature of uh, when natural selection is uh, acting to prefer a sort of a friendlier set of behaviors. And you can look at morphology, you can look at the hormones, uh, how an animal develops, and you can look for evidence for the hand of friendliness in shaping a species. Well, again, this is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. In our final minutes of speaking, we talked to Brian Hare, co-author of Survival of the Friendliest, Understanding Our Origins and Rediscovering Our Common Humanity. Last minute or two, if you would like to ask a quick question or offer a comment, you can call 813 Three nine nine six six three. Email DJ at WMNF.org or text 813-433-0885. So I had to think, Dr. Hare, that without even knowing all the details that you've explained in our conversation today about throwing out a big hunk of the manuscript and starting over, that then you did turn it in, having done all that research and revising or whatever. And then I would think that with the pandemic hitting and things like... Uh, I mean, you address Charlottesville and stuff, it's as current as that in the book anyway, but then the George Floyd situation, all the 
protests and things that we've sort of touched on more in a more general sense, it almost be like, gosh, I, <laughs> do we need to rewrite it again? I mean, it just it seems like there's so many things that hook right into the, the both the positive and, and flip side of friendliness that even have happened just in recent months, including, I think you write at one point about the uh, the beneficial contact of, you could say something about a casual conversation, a work partnership, uh, or a mixed classroom, all things that now, of course, are prevented in the area of quarantines and lockdowns, unless you count Zoom uh, sessions, which I don't think really quite qualify. So it just seems like it's there's always going to be something that's uh, going to uh, present examples of the, the pros and the cons, the, the friendliness uh, predisposition. Yeah, absolutely. And so um, that was really our goal was to, I, I guess the way to think about it is it's, it's like having the specs of a car or the specs of a new, um, any anything that's been engineered. We were trying to sort of re- re- reverse engineer or figure out how are we built? Like, uh, what what is it that allows us to be successful? And we come out screaming with the answer that in our brain there are mechanisms uh, that, and we have a network in our brain that allows for friendliness. But when that network shuts down, that's then what allows for uh, the worst part of our nature. And uh, it's built into all of us. Uh, and uh, if we want to immunize ourselves uh, and get the best and the, the most friendliness out of one another, uh, then what we have to do is, as you were suggesting, uh, the, the, the number one way that we can um, make sure that we're not dehumanizing uh, each other is to have cross-group friendships. Because when you have friendships that span as a bridge across multiple groups and people of different identities, uh, it tends to reduce the ability of even the most intolerant person uh, dehumanizing and excluding people morally and then being accepting of violent or uh, harm to occur to others. And it's very well established in the literature. We know that um, uh, there are many experiments and studies showing that friendships between different groups really has a powerful effect at driving more friendliness and reducing the worst and darker demons of our nature. So that was sort of how then we can look through any event, whether it's thinking about um, Black Lives Matters or COVID or anything else, um, uh, how do we prevent dehumanization, which uh, we didn't really talk about it before, but um, uh, there's a lot of emphasis on prejudice. And prejudice is a dislike of another group. That's how it's defined. Yeah. But dehumanization is a far darker, sinister force than prejudice. Prejudice is terrible, um, but dehumanization is uh, a much more extreme psychological trait that allows for really horrific violence. Uh, And so that's what we want. Obviously, we need to work on prejudice, too, but dehumanization is the scariest of human psychological features well we should probably leave it there but and we're definitely out of time but for just a quick question that's kind of off topic but sort of ties in i have to say i am curious about isabella rossellini who blurbed the book and said great things about it and posted about it uh, last week on instagram page and uh, i think her support extends much further back than that in a quick nutshell what is the isabella rossellini story with you guys and, and the books and your work so isabella rossellini is a good friend and that happened because she has the most brilliant set of vignettes 
about animal behavior that everyone must watch. They're called green porno. Yeah. And green porn. And if you haven't met, if you haven't run into them, they are so fun. And she has another set um, on uh, motherhood. And so we just met and we we're talking about animal behavior. I honestly, I didn't even know how famous she was. I just knew her for that. Oh, wow. That's and, great. Yeah. And so I think that in part touched her because she really worked hard and she she got a master's in animal behavior. Um, and so we just became buddies uh, because she loves animals. We love animals. And uh, we we started talking about the book and she got really excited about it and, and has helped us, uh, you know, figure out how to communicate things and um, just been a great friend. And we just adore her. That's great. And that's great. They kind of circled in from a, a corner where you didn't even know, like, of her amazing body of work as an actress. So that's really cool. So uh, and it's a good supporter to have. It sounds like, yeah, she, her own work is really intriguing for sure. So, uh, Dr. Hare, we have reached the end of our time. We've been speaking with Dr. Brian Hare, and the new book with uh, written with Vanessa Woods is Survival of the Friendliest, Understanding Our Origins and Rediscovering Our Common Humanity, available wherever you get your books. And there's a website, net for more information about some of the work we talked about today and some of the other work we didn't have a chance to talk about. So, Dr. Hare, thank you so much for joining us again on Talking Animals. Thank you. It was a great pleasure. I appreciate it. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. In a moment, I'll speak with Scott Trevitoski, director of the Hillsborough County Pet Resource Center, seeking to follow up on how the COVID-19 has impacted the facility, including a huge surge in adoptions. I'll be asking if that trend has reversed course or at least slowed down as the pandemic rolls along and more menacing than ever. So right now, though, let's step into the comedy corner. This guy has been one of my top favorites for all the years I've been a comedy fan, which is quite a few years. This is Dana Gould with a piece called Snakes and Alligators in today's Comedy Corner on Talking Animals on WMNF. This is absolutely true. It happened about three weeks ago in North Carolina. They had the big hurricane. There's a woman in her house. Her house is filling up with water, but she can't go outside to get help because the water outside the house was filled with snakes and alligators. Now, I'm not here to judge anybody. But if you're going to drown in your own home because the water outside is filled with snakes and alligators, you did something. <laughs> Life is not that cruel. I'm sure the National Guard helicopter, go outside and we'll lower a ladder. I can't, the water is filled with snakes and alligators. Jeez, lady, what did you do? <laughs> By the way, why are there alligators? Like, I understand that God made sunsets and rainbows. Do we really need a gorilla made of leather that lives in the swamp and wants you dead? But did he come up with a shark and think, oh, it can't chase you across a golf course. Hang on, I got another idea. <laughs> then he came up with a crocodile for the sole reason that you could be thinking you're eaten by an alligator and be wrong. <laughs> you know, it's a bad idea because it lives in the swamp. Alligators, crocodiles. What's a snake but a rope that hates you? Put it in the swamp. <laughs> Just put it in the swamp. The swamp is God's porn drawer. <laughs> All the creepy stuff, put in the swamp, cover it with a t-shirt. I'll deal with it later. Don't worry about it. That was Danny Gould with a piece called 
Snakes and alligators. And, uh, well, that's what I'm calling it, at least. It was taken from one of his appearances on Conan. Now it's time to speak with Scott Trevitoski, director of the Hillsborough County Pet Resource Center. This is Scott Trevitoski on Talking Animals on WNF. Good morning, Scott. Good morning. Thanks for joining us again on Talking Animals. No problem. So when we spoke in April, the Pet Resource Center was adapting really well, including employees' uh, schedules divided into sort of platoons in a sense, with one team alternating days at home and days at the shelter. So how are things going these days, three months later? What's changed and what's similar? I, I think it's going pretty well. We, we definitely have learned to adapt. Um, I think the exciting part is that we are still seeing a, a fairly strong demand for the animals. So a lot of the animals that do come through the shelter are here less than seven days, which is incredible. Um, we've also had the opportunity to take those dogs that have become very unique behaviorally and get them adopted where I think when we were swamped we couldn't do that um, so I, I see exciting I see exciting future in this industry uh, the one thing that we are slowly starting to see though is as time goes on there are becoming more and more people who are financially strained and they've been thinking that they have to get rid of their animals fortunately for us that's not our philosophy. So we've been working on setting them up with food until they get a regular income, um, doing the basic medical if that's what's needed, or finding someone in the community to do medical for them. But this isn't a time that we've never seen before for someone to say, now I need to get rid of my pet if there's a way we can keep that pet at home. And so far, we've been 85% successful keeping the animals in the home. Wow, that's really uh, that's really impressive, those kind of numbers, because I did think part of the reason I thought this would be a good time to check back with you, because when we spoke in April, you were seeing a lot of adoptions, and it was pretty steady stream, but I think even you kind of felt like, and, and certainly talking with other people in the shelter world over the ensuing uh, period about the same kind of thing happening, where most everywhere across the country, there was a lot of adoptions, again, tied to people being quarantines at home, here's a chance to, to adopt a dog, we've been thinking about doing it, or whatever their story might be. But there was a certain concern, I think, among shelter professionals that the other shoe might well drop, exactly for what you mentioned, that as people, unfortunately, uh, businesses did go out, sort of start to fail or struggle, or people did lose their jobs, that there would be, of course, the corresponding difficulty of, of being able to feed and care for their animals. So it sounds like some people have said, hey, that's where we are, but you're able to help keep them at least in food. Well, is there a certain program or grant that enables you to do that? And is that for everybody who kind of knocks on the door? I imagine you probably can't necessarily supply everybody that is struggling. Well, we have um, people that we have been calling retention counselors because that's sort of what they're called around the country. But we're sort of thinking that's not the correct um, classification. So we're kind of looking more towards caseworker. Mm. And so we'll sit down and, and, and have an individual interview, assign a, a caseworker and, you know, try to figure out where the needs are and what the resources. What we've been fortunate is that we've been able to find ways to keep these pets in the homes 
at a lower cost than what it would take for them to come into the shelter. So we've just been using our regular budget. We've not tapped into any COVID money or anything like that. We're simply reimagining how to deliver services. So it sounds like you're really classically looking at cost-benefit analysis and saying, all right, well, if we do this, this, and this, this will keep that animal in that home and be better for us in this, this, and this way. Correct. And and I think that that's what's kind of exciting about this. And as long as um, the exiting of this weird situation is done systematically, I think we'll be able to keep up with the demand as people, you know, go back to work and their life changes and, you know, they may need to make some adjustments. For us, the hardest thing would be is if he just like was an on and off switch and all of a sudden it was like, okay, everything's going back. I think we would have people who were overwhelmed. But right now it seems more like people are gradually going back to work, which is good for us. We've been able to... Scott, I'm so sorry we're we're just out of time, but thank you. I'm going to check back with you in a few months and see where we are.